Welcome to Forever White Belt. I'm your host, Adolfo Fronda. Today on the show, we have Quentin, the hitman, Rosenzweig. Quentin earned his black belt from Ricardo Merguel at the age of 24. He's the Onnit Invitational 205-pound champ, having submitted both Roberto Jimenez and Kyle Bohm. He's also the Sapatero heavyweight champ and a champion in many other pro events. Today, Quentin now runs 10th Planet, Savannah, Georgia. He has been a much-feared leg locker in the Deep South for some time, so it's nice to see him finally getting the attention he deserves on a national level. Quentin has a great mind for the art. In the episode, he talks about his legendary training, much of which you can see on his Instagram account, how to develop competitors, running academies, his difficulty getting opponents to agree to matches with him, and so much more. Just a reminder to give us a five-star review on iTunes and Spotify, and share this podcast with a friend. It really helps us out. Leave us feedback and suggestions on how we can improve the show at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt forward slash message. And consider becoming a patron at anchor.fm forward slash foreverwhitebelt. Like us on Facebook and TikTok at foreverwhitebelt. And check us out on Instagram at foreverwhitebeltshow. Go buy your favorite foreverwhitebelt swag at teespring.com forward slash forever-whitebelt. If you ever get to beautiful Northern California, please come roll with us at North Bay Jiu-Jitsu in the city of Novato. There are amazing instructors and everyone there are great people. Also, make sure to mention the podcast and you'll get two weeks free. And with that, I give you Quentin Rosenzweig. Quentin, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for having me. 10th Planet Savannah. Yes, we're on 1319 Bull Street and going to its new location now for a little less than a month. Put a lot of time and work into it. It's a long time coming. I've been saying for probably since I was like a blue belt that I was going to open my own gym one day. And finally, I have it. Everything I ever wanted. For that long, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you is um, what compelled you to open an academy? Uh, well, I was teaching at Knuckle Up in Atlanta and I ran the program there for a long time. But I always kind of wanted my own gym. I was in school to, to be a doctor, and I was at the precipice of where I could either run the jiu-jitsu team at the school I started at, or I could go to med school, in which case I probably wouldn't be able to train much for a few years. Mm-hmm. So I had a conversation with a, a really good buddy of mine, Dr. Chris Hazarati, who's a black belt and a high-level competitor, has been doing IBJF forever. And he said, you have a real talent for jiu-jitsu and a real love for it. He goes, I think you would hate being a doctor. He's like, go jiu-jitsu. So I did. So as soon as I started, decided to really start doing that, my plan long-term was to have my own team and goal. And it, it's slowly becoming that. I have now three affiliate schools and our gym here in downtown Savannah. So going great. Congratulations. That's great. Thank you. What have you learned since opening the academy to where you are now? So I've been teaching for a long time. So teaching is mm-hmm. a whole, whole nother thing. But just on the business side of things, what you don't realize is how much location makes a difference because we were in a mm-hmm. previous location and have as much foot traffic. And now since we moved to our new one, like the amount of members we have that draw in parking's a huge thing. If you don't have great parking, you're like a safe parking area. It's not going to be great for your business. And lastly is all the hoops you have to jump through as far as like paperwork and all that stuff. Like I, wow. I can choke people all day, but like you put a stack of paperwork in front of me and like I'm reading another language. <laughs> and then what about like uh, the dynamics in terms of like, do you guys have a kids program there or no? Yeah, we just started our kids program. So uh, it's honestly been taken off like it was lit on gas with yeah. gasoline. We started like a week ago with our kids program and we're already up to like 10 kids. Congratulations. I know there's a huge demand for that and um, a huge demand for kids teachers as well. I hear, I hear that's very difficult to find 
good kids uh, teachers, instructors? Yeah, I was lucky that I started out teaching kids when I was like pretty young. I would help assist the like kids class when I started teaching at like Blue Belt to help pay for my membership. Mm-hmm. So I like I had a lot of experience doing that. I hadn't done it in a while because we first opened our old location. It was in a, a warehouse and there was all kinds of stuff in there that it wasn't kid friendly. And now we're in a kid friendly location. So it feels good to be getting a kid's program going. I'm excited to see where it goes. That's where you really start seeing like that next level talent is those yeah. kids that transfer from a kid's program into an adult program. So yeah. that'll be exciting in the next few years. You're now 10th Planet. Everyone knows you for being this just fierce leg lock competitor, no gi competitor primarily, but you did start out in the gi, correct? Yeah. I, and so I'm curious, what, what does your, your gi game even look like? <laughs> it doesn't look like it looks a lot different than my no gi game. I like passing a lot in the gi. And yeah. I like bow and arrow chokes. I like the pelt chokes. Like I got my black belt from Ricardo Mergel. I right. like I only joined 10th Planet maybe three, four years ago because I was good friends with Brandon McCatherine and Marvin Castile and Eddie and I were always close. But yeah, no, I still throw the gi on about like once a week just to make sure I still got it. How do you deal with academy dynamics? Because the thing that I've learned from a lot of you guys, the academy owners, is that you wear like lots of different hats. As you said, you know, one of which just being with like city municipalities and weird stuff like that. Uh, we do have quite a few academy owners that listen to the show and they're always looking for input in terms of like even dealing with overzealous coaching from parents <laughs> or people thinking they deserve certain belt things, uh, perhaps intensity levels of training. How are you balancing all that stuff? Honestly, that's a really good question. So as far as parents go, parents follow whatever standard you set from the get. So if you let one parent coach, you have to let every parent coach. And as far as like my feeling towards parents coaching is they better be a brown or black belt to say anything on my mat. <laughs> as far as coaching kids goes. And I, I tell them that I'm like, if you want to coach your kid at all, you better be a higher rank than your kid. Like, don't come in here and think you know more than them because you're sitting on the <laughs> side watching them because I will call you out on that. But as far as like wearing the many hats in the academy, I think that really the best thing you can do is when you start your academy, make sure you have a really strong core group. If you have a strong core group, like a group of like where it's like a family, the gym can kind of like lean on certain things. There's been plenty of times where I've been injured or traveling. And there's one other black belt here that teaches with me now. His name's Steele McCall. He also runs our Thai program. Like if I'm out of town, he covers. And But I know like if he can't cover, I know I can call any of my upper belts and they're going to be here in no time and have my back. And as wow. far as like getting stuff done around, like I just try to pull and like get mentors and as many different things as possible. So I have a really good buddy that's like really good at business. And I ask him any questions I have, like my business licensing and whatever stuff I need for that. I have another friends that own gyms. So I'll reach out to them. Like uh, one of my business partners, Jake Joe, who runs American Top Team in Atlanta, or Josh LaDuke, who managed me for a very long time, runs Top Tarot. I ask him questions all the time. I'll just shoot mm-hmm. them random questions. And that's a big thing is don't be afraid to ask people questions. A lot of people like go to start a gym and they're like, this is all me. I'm doing everything. <laughs> and then you don't realize all the little nuances that you miss. Have you ever had to like uh, deal with like different type of psychological aspects of people in terms of like, as I mentioned before, maybe uh, intensity levels in terms of like, hey, you could be ramping up your training a bit more than you do or vice versa. Someone who's just going just balls out all the time. <laughs> so we have a, like, if you ever been to my gym, we have a different level of intensity. Like every day here is hard training. We, we don't really go easy, but there there's controlled points to it. Right. 
And I think the way you kind of police that is you have, again, you have to have that core group of people that if someone's like being too spazzy or something like that, like hmm. we're not afraid to call each other out. Like everything that happens on the mats is like a friend zone. We're all doing this because it's fun. We're all learning because it's fun. Like I eliminate any of those sort of like bowing kind of stuff in my gym. Like we don't do any of that. Like, honestly, I don't even necessarily think belts are a great idea. I think it puts people in the wrong mindset of how to learn jujitsu. Because people focus on the belt, not the technique. And then that becomes their main goal. I think it's good for kids, but I don't know how I feel about it for adults. But yeah, it's really hard to balance that. Because every once in a while, you will get those people where you're like, maybe this person doesn't belong here. Maybe another Mm. team would be a better suit for them. And like, I've had that before where you sit down and have a talk with your team because I do everything with my team. Like, I don't make any executive decisions for the most point. Like, I sit down, I talk to my team, and like, we've had people that like had asked to leave, or I was like, hey, I think you'd be a better fit somewhere else kind of stuff. But just try to keep it all positive when you do. So you see 10th Planet Savannah as being more sort of a comp academy then? Not even necessarily a comp academy. It's just, we try to keep it fun. Like, we like to go hard and stuff like that, but everyone just goes as hard as the person goes with them. You Mm -hmm. judge it by how the other person's going, but we don't shy away from rough training. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we do our 12 round Tuesday every Tuesday and I don't make anybody come to anything, but it's our busiest class of the week by far. We'll have like 20, sometimes over 20 people in there and our mats are filled and it's just a steamy pile of sweat, but everyone loves it. And you'll never see bigger smiles anywhere else than you will after that. Let's uh, talk about your game and let's talk about the evolution of it from, geez, the early days to where it is now and where you see it going. Yeah. I mean, I- I think I just kind of saw where the trends were going before they went there. I had a benefit of training like um, some leg locks very early on. Like the very first jiu-jitsu class I ever took was with Rafael Asunso. And he showed me a straight ankle lock. I came back the next day. I straight ankle locked a blue belt. And he's all mad yelling at me saying I couldn't do him. So I was like, oh, I like this. And then as we progressed like training and stuff like that, I was training with our Dia brothers a lot because in Atlanta, there just wasn't that many like high level no D guys. So like we all kind of like just gravitated towards each other and found training. Uh, Paul just won the ADCC trials. I think it's really almost everybody in his division, including like Elder Cruz. And he, he won the finals easily. But we all just used to beat the crap out of each other. And then Serge faced Eddie Cummings earlier on before Eddie blew up. So we kind of had an idea of where the leg locks were going. So mm. I had those two guys that were great wrestlers with pressure passing. And I was rolling with them all the time. So I had to develop a game that would counter their game well. So a lot of it was playing off that hard knee cut pressure pass style and out movement. So I had to develop different angles to spin in. That's why like a lot of people, they fall deep into like the Donner like camp and stuff like that. And there's just things in there that I personally don't like for my jujitsu or like open locks and stuff like that and the wedging. So it kind of steered away from that. Everything I, I like to do for legs is all about controls and being able to switch in between legs as people try to counter and escape. I think it's ignored a lot, but like almost all my game is focused towards either legs or back attacks. I've added a lot more wrestling over the last few years, which I've gotten to show a little bit, but not as much as I like to. And I think moving forward in the coming years, that's where it's going to be. I was really upset these last trials had to miss out because I snapped my toe in half going for a lat drop on sweaty mats. But oh, I'll definitely be at the next where you trial are. to do. Okay. Yeah, it was fun. It was like two days before leaving. I went to go hit a lat drop and my toe right next to my big toe literally snapped in half. And I went to the doctor and I was like, well, I can just tape it up and be fine, right? And he goes, no. He goes, you might tear the tendon in it because it's in half. And then it will like never move the same again. So some people had to talk me down, but I didn't end up going. But hopefully I'll be competing again soon. It's healing pretty well. I'm back to rolling with wrestling shoes on. 
I know. I remember hearing about you. I think you were tore something in your knee before. And I think you were back on the mats in like three days or something. Probably your earliest yeah. bad yeah, injury. Yeah, I'm, I'm a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I trained for like three months with a broken hand in the gi. Like I've trained with broken toes, broken fingers, broken noses. You just kind of get used to it after a while. You protect yourself as you can, but you only get a short amount of time to actually do all this. So I try to, I try to train as much as I can. I get obsessed. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of, how old are you right now, Quinn? 31. Let's talk about your training outside of jujitsu. I've seen your IG and it's, it's insane. I, it scares me when I, <laughs> why don't you describe what does your training outside of jujitsu look like? I wake up 6am every day. I do like an hour workout. It's usually a, a mix between like a hit style training, either old school, like meathead style lifts. I do a lot of like knees over toes stuff, a lot of sled drags. And then I also work a lot of balance stuff too. A lot of like Lotus on yoga balls trying to balance there's anything that adds to the sum of my game as a whole so i'll usually do a 6 a.m workout and then i either do like a long walk or i do a 10 a.m workout which would just be like a different style of workout sometimes i'll do like a shoulder recovery or like a stretch thing and then i do i teach a noon class and i roll probably like three to four rounds every noon class Sometimes I have like other stuff in like yesterday we did like a Greco training. So I did, I taught like a 430 kids class and I, I did a 530 to 630 Greco training with my buddy Jason Kelly who came in. So we did a bunch of Greco rounds Then we do 630 class and then I roll with them for probably about a half hour. And then I'll usually drive to like one of my affiliate gyms where I teach again at eight o'clock and then I'll roll with them. till basically nine and I do that like five days a week. And then Saturdays we do a 11 a.m. class and we'll roll for like an hour and we'll do gi open mat. So I'll do gi for like an hour. And then I'll usually go drive and teach a private and roll with them for like an hour. And then we do Sunday open mat and I'll roll for like two hours on Sunday also. And then you wake up and do it all again. <laughs> yeah. And then Tuesdays, we do 12 round Tuesdays as well. So, so what's the recovery uh, day? What well, recovery day, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, no. Some days I'll just like take it easy. So I don't really like take days off too often unless I'm like hurt. But what I'll do is like, if I roll, I'll try to focus on certain things. Like maybe I won't focus on like trying to just crush everybody. I'll just focus on, I want to focus on this one sweep. So I won't spend quite as much energy or be like quite as sore, but I, I focus heavy on a technique. What did your 20s look like versus, you know, where you're at now? <laughs> Honestly, I probably feel better now than I ever have. But there are definitely some miles, like my hands hurt and stuff like that. But not too bad. I think a lot of the strength and conditioning has helped prolong me. Like, I, I really don't have any back problems. Like, I know a lot of jujitsu guys, especially have been doing it as long as I have, end up with like bulging discs or stuff mm -hmm. like that. But I've stayed pretty proactive. I also, I'm pretty big on recovery stuff. Like I do Epsom salt baths just about every day. I do all like the so right stuff. So right sponsor me. So like, give me all their stuff. So I, I make sure to use all that. I just try to stay mindful that like whatever I do to like do damage to my body, I try to spend a, at least a quarter as much time or at least half as much time doing some kind of recovery for my body. Most guys don't ever mention is the long walk. That was very interesting to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, Walking that is a super important. People forget all the tiny stuff, right? Yeah. So I started realizing even as you just get older and you start watching people around, as you watch people kind of break down and some people break down earlier, it's usually from inactivity, whether it's people sitting at like desks for too long or it's people ignoring certain exercises. Like life is a game of balance. So you got to find those balances on where to add everything. So like I like swimming, I like kayaking, I like adding a bunch of different stuff. So I never have a muscle group that like doesn't get work imbalances in the body and imbalances in life always lead to something negative, whether it's injury or like mental stuff, balance is everything.
I always yeah. try to hit like every kind of workout, every kind of everything. Well, yeah, it's really smart. I remember speaking with Kyle Sleeman earlier. He's a black belt and Canadian black belt. And he was really into weightlifting, which seems like the, one of the obvious things that we should be doing. But he's, he's like, it's like building your armor in a sense, right? It's yeah. like you're, you're, you're protecting yourself from injuries or ho- hopefully. Yeah. Well, I mean, you see kind of the opposite effect of that where you have people throw on way too much muscle too quickly and then you see tears and stuff like that. I think the biggest thing is just building a, an athletic body, building flexibility, building range of motion and strength through motion. That's why like classic meathead stuff never really works out too well for people long-term. You end up seeing guys like tear knees or like blow out their pecs or biceps and stuff like that. So I think a lot more of like the functional stuff, like you see with like the maces and clubs and kettlebells, like that's all the stuff that really like helps elongate your career long-term. Then like deadlifts. So what do you mean by strength through motion? Those examples, mace, kettlebell? Mace, kettlebell, sled drags, anything where you're doing movements that translate to actual movements. Like if I have a movement, like I I get real creative sometimes like bands and stuff like that. But if it's something that I feel like I can recreate a movement that I feel in jujitsu that I can build and strengthen, I know this movement is not going to hurt me quite as much. So let's say like I like doing wizards, but every time I go for like Uchimata, my wizard, my shoulder tightens up and it's Mm -hmm. really hard to like to get it done. Well, that probably means I either have an imbalance or a weakness in my shoulder. So now I'm going to try to figure out how I can fix that. Maybe I throw a band around my arm just so it gets a little bit of tension and I just turn it. So stuff like that. We were Mm -hmm. like, I got to fix those little gaps in the pavement. So is this something that you're just experimenting on your own or, I mean, being a professional athlete, are you looking to other professional physios or I know you have several mentors? A lot of it is stuff I picked up along the way. Like I've had tons of great strength and conditioning coaches from doing this forever and just being in the field, but also like playing like high school football. Like I was on a really good football team at one point in time. So we had great strength and conditioning coaches there. And then, yeah, Mm -hmm. I watch video on jujitsu and conditioning stuff all the time. And like you said, you've seen my IG, like even when I, I get new stuff or like if I run out of ideas, I have no problem posting They're like, Hey, please send me ideas for workouts. I love new ideas because I hate cool. doing the stuff, same stuff every day. Like that my ADD kicks in and I'm like, ah, I don't want to do this again. So it's always like, I'm looking for something new, something that's going to challenge me, something I get good at. Anytime I find like a new workout that is really hard, I get so obsessed with it that I will do it till it becomes one of the easiest things ever. Like that's mm-hmm. how it was when I started out with like the grappito stuff. So it was with the, like all the knees over toes stuff. And then finally one day I was like, all right, I'm going to do a pile of sled drags with like 280 pounds. And that was rough, but yeah, I'll do stuff like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that means that you've experimented with stuff that you've like said, this doesn't work for me or, or you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. As well. definitely. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Like I, I tried doing CrossFit for a little bit and I was like, this puts too much strain on your joints for mm-hmm. what I want to do. Cause I already put strain on my joints. Are you thinking about competition right now? Uh, yeah, I got some stuff coming up. I was talking with the subversive people about maybe getting on a team there. There is a tournament called Twisted Church in Columbus, Ohio, I'll be doing. And on May 24th, I believe. That'll be my first one back off the toe. So I'm excited to show out there. But yeah, no, I I like to stay busy. It's just hard getting matches. So everything I kind of got to, I'm at a point where like big name guys don't want to face me too much because my Instagram's not a million followers. And then like the lower end guys are a little scared. So I thought enter these like pro tournaments. So you're still having the issue of uh, finding uh, matches, huh? It's interesting. Oh, I've always had that issue my whole career. Yeah, yeah, I've um, heard about that. Yeah. I know a lot, a lot of <laughs> yeah. guys don't want to deal with you because of your your quick finishes. I I mean, just... even if you beat me, it ain't going to be easy. <laughs> You're going to wade through some stuff. But yeah, no, I, a lot of people, they don't want to end up on an Instagram highlight. That's what it is. Like, 
I'm going to beat you. It's going to be a highlight. All those like big name guys can't risk not selling as many DVDs, I guess. Right, right. The whole business and marketing reality of it all. Yeah, sure. Call me old school. I just like rolling. Let's talk about your competing mindset. I'm curious when you're competing, it sure doesn't seem like you give a damn about points or anything. Do you have strategies going in? And I'm just curious, you know, what's going through your mind as you enter a, you know, a particular high level competition? Um, it depends really. Like I used to do, come in with like game plans and strategies and I'll have like loose outlines depending on the style of the person I'm facing. But the biggest thing is I, I just want to stay calm and open. Like I try to keep my head pretty clear. Like I'll have like objectives that I want to test out and see. So it's like a, trying to get someone's timing down and distancing. But once I feel like I have it pretty good, it's just attack. So I'm like attack to attack to attack to attack. My goal is, is like most jujitsu matches aren't that long. You're talking for black belts, it goes anywhere from six to 10 minutes, really. So in six to 10 minutes, I have to think if it's points, maybe I'll wrestle, maybe I won't, depending on if it's ADCC style and a guard pull is going to be against it. Mm -hmm. But if I have to, I like to wrestle. But if there's no points, I don't waste the energy. My goal is to enter, enter quick, usually off balance. I like to cut hard angles. Like a lot of people spend a lot of their time in jujitsu, like head to head. And I'm always like an off to a 45 kind of guy. I don't know if it's from doing like striking at points in my life, but it just like, it makes more sense to me. Like every kind of combat sport is always made easier if you can cut a hard angle. So look, what I like to do is I come low, I cut a hard angle and then I start to attack. And that's pretty much what I do to everyone. Is there like a mental aspect to it? Not really. I mean, I've just been doing it so long. Like I've played football, I fought MMA, like doing jujitsu. It's what I do every day. Mm-hmm. Like I don't really feel too much nerves toward it anymore. Like try to like hype myself up because it, it almost seems like wasted energy at certain points. Because if you're, if you have to get hype, that means like there's energy being spent and stuff like that. I try to approach it as calm as possible, as minimal usage of energy as possible. Because now you have all these tournaments, like even the last trials, where you might have eight matches before you finish. So like as, as little energy as I can use to win a match, I will. I like to make highlights. What do you wish you were better at? <sighs> I wish I was just better at playing the game sometimes. A lot of times I'll go into matches where I'm like, I just think of it as a shootout. I'm like, I'm going to try to finish you. You're going to try to finish me. And this is what's going to happen. And that's not the case a lot of times. Most people don't want to do that. They don't want to like battle it out for subs, even though that like everyone says that's what our goal is in Jiu-Jitsu. Points are supposed to be when submissions can't happen. Mm -hmm. Or at least that's how they were originally brought around. My idea is, well, I'm going to go for the sub. So like uh, I had that catch wrestling match with John Combs and I didn't think we were going to try to pin each other. I thought it was kind of silly. I was like, I want to finish you. I'm coming after you. Yeah. And I came damn near close a few times. I never felt in danger with them once. And it got a little slippery and I got pinned. And I'm like, oh, this is silly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, this means nothing. <laughs> and that's kind of how I feel yeah. about points too. Points are all fine. But like, I think I've only ever won like one or two matches in my entire jiu-jitsu career on points. And you feel dirty when you do. <laughs> You're like, this isn't a real one. So you brought up ADCC trials. Was there anyone there that you were keeping an eye on that impressed you? Or what were your thoughts? Oh, trials are awesome. Seeing J-Rod come through and just buzzsaw everybody and hit buggy chokes and stuff like that, that was was pretty impressive. He definitely had a big step up from his East Coast trials. Because I remember, I think Adrian Nez heel hooked him from like a single leg to a heel hook. It was a nice setup, Mm -hmm. but like watch him go through. Let's see. Again, Paul Ardia, who's won trials three times now and nobody talks about. That's still kind of ridiculous to me, but I guess they are now. Who else is there? Kyle Bame went out and showed out. It's weird seeing Kyle so big. 
And I Huge. guess those big guys can't keep up with that technical game. And then Keith's Krikorian and Keith is my boy. Fantastic. <laughs> but yeah. watching Keith finally win it, that, that was great. Like that brought a smile on my face. Even though like I couldn't compete watching those guys, like my buddies go out and win. Mm. That was cool. How'd that feel for you? Were you like dying inside or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> I had to go back and watch the matches after. Like I couldn't watch what stuff was going on. I, I definitely went back and watched the highlights and stuff like that and was quite happy when I saw it happen. Speaking of the new talent, I'm curious, do you think we need like a, you know, you don't play much IBJJF at all, so you, it's not as as uh, relevant to you, but uh, do you think we need like a professional division? Uh, a professional division? I mean, yeah, because here's the thing. This was always my biggest peeve with IBJJF, right? So they charge the people who make them the most money, the most money. Like if you got to be paying your black belts now, like there's too many organizations that do. So there's lots of stuff you see that are kind of paying people. It was getting really good there for a little bit before the pandemic. And then people kind of got away with during COVID not paying people to do jujitsu mm. again. Mm. So it's kind of hard to pull that back. But mm. thankfully, this is like some of the biggest takeaway from like the like the Gordons and guys like that, like guys asking for money is you start to see how much people are willing to pay. So you can get a little bit more, which is good. But I think the biggest thing is there's no discussion really, for the most part, over what people make in jujitsu. There's all these claims for promoters where they're like, we paid out this much. And it's like, yeah, but you might have only paid that to one guy. Like mm-hmm. then the whole undercard may have never seen a dime. And that's really how you start supporting like a professional organization for jujitsu is you got to start paying those middle of the road and even the lower end guys, because those guys are not going to stick around forever. And then the sport will slowly die off and you won't have the competitors to keep it. Mm-hmm. But luckily we have guys like the Tackets who are amazing, that Jamie and kid that's been training with the B team. Like there's a whole bunch of up and coming guys that are going to help oh, yeah. keep the sport going for a while. Not quite sure on personalities yet. Like there's no guys that really stick out the same, like how Gordon did where they could play the role a bit. Do you think we we'll need see. that? I don't think we need exactly somebody like Gordon because there's, like, there's different people for different times. Gordon was the person for his time. I think injuries and stuff might slow him down here for a good bit, especially with his stomach. So, And I think that you're going to see somebody else come up here soon. But I, I think if you're going to be a big name in the sport, you have to have some kind of personality, something that draws mm-hmm. people to you. Because you can just go out there and murder people and then people don't care because they have no investment in you. There's something about when people do try to take on the persona of Gordon or something like that. It just doesn't seem it's cringy. Real. Yeah. It's just people try to do it like him. Like, I mean, even when Gordon started out, he was doing that as like a joke and then mm-hmm. just kind of morphed into just how he was. And, and there's that argument too that people bring up like WWE or something like that. Like, do we yeah. need the heel? Do we really need all that kind of stuff? And over how many heels can we have? Yeah. But I mean, it's an overlying theme you see in sports. You don't always need the heel, but you do need a figurehead. Like whether it was like Hickson back in the day or Hoist when like the UFC was coming around, you need someone that somebody can look to and be like, all right, this is the guy that represents our sport for a bit. Like Gordon was that for a while. Is he still that? We'll see with these coming up ADCCs. He's got a good match with Galval and probably will face Penna in his division, mm-hmm. which Penna's already beat him twice. He hasn't beat Penna. That'll be interesting. Galval is a gamer, so you don't know how that's going to work out. If he'll run the time and then beat Gordon Wrestling. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're going to think about it, that'd be the way to beat him. Like, it's one of his weaker areas. He's been out-wrestled by wrestlers. Maybe you can time it out, take him down, get the points, get the W. I don't see him submitting Gordon by any chance. Like, if a sub's going to happen, it's definitely going to be Gordon submitting Andre. But it'd be really interesting to watch. 
Your thoughts on the kids that are coming up, the real young kids, the, the talent just seems to have hockey sticked and you're in a really interesting position too, because you're like in between like what, let's say the Galvao's and the Colabates of the world, right? Where um, yeah. the Coles, you guys have had like the best trainers, the, you have all this online content and, and all this stuff to benefit from. So your thoughts on the young, young talent versus the gatekeeper, so to speak. And, and this is not yeah. true for the Galvao's, the gatekeeper for God's sake. I mean, he's getting there, kind of, <laughs> but he's still, I mean, he's still one of the guys, but no, 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 like the Cole box, like Cole's amazing. Like, I remember seeing Cole at like the AGFs back in the day, like smashing kids. So watching him, what he's doing now is not surprising, but like there's, there's tons of great kids. Like those Tackett kids. I remember I filmed my BJJ Fanatics instructional right That's after right. Will Tackett filmed his, and I was watching him do his body lock stuff and the details he was showing. I was like, oh, there's another level to this coming because mm-hmm. that kid's mind for jujitsu is something else like the way. He, he angles on his passing. He's very smart. There's just so many of them coming through, like the generation of like girls coming up. One of my yeah. former students has been doing really well, Alex Enriquez. Uh, she trains with Bruno Fazzato now. And she's a monster and wow. still real young too. There's just so many of them now. <laughs> Yeah. And the thing is, because of the internet and because Jiu-Jitsu is now getting more world, like worldwide, it's only going to exponentially grow. Like the more minds in it is going to evolve it at an accelerated rate. So I'm excited to see what kind of techniques come next. Because I feel like there's a lot of leg lock angles that we still ignore that people are going to figure out here soon. Like what? I know you've mentioned before, you thought uh, something like Z was kind of the future... I mean, I think there's a lot of like the Z locks and stuff like that. The AOT mm-hmm. locks. They, I mean, it kind of has been. People have been using it way more. But there's a lot more that people just haven't quite figured out yet. Like mm-hmm. Mikey's been playing with a lot of like the off the head foot lock heel hook combos. But there's more than even that. Because once you start controlling angles of the knee and setting it, there's different ways you can set reverse toe holds that get real funky and start opening up different angles for stuff. And then I'm sure there's stuff I haven't even thought of yet. Like every once in a while, I'll see someone throw some stuff. And I'm like, oh my goodness. Like, yeah, you'll get your videos that aren't that great that like will be like 20 moves long. And you're like, all right, that's never going to work in a roll. I don't know what I just watched. But then you'll see like one of those like slick things where you're like, oh, I never thought about that angle. Just switching it here. Like a lot of that backside 50-50 stuff. Like when all that stuff started coming around, we were like, oh yeah, we kind of thought about that for a while, but no one really put it together a system for getting there over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then you saw Lachlan and all those guys start doing it. And you're like, okay. But I think there's going to be a lot more stuff like that that people just aren't quite there yet on. And your thoughts on the uh, leg defense game? I'm seeing a lot more. So it used to be where you, would, you wouldn't see any leg defense. People just tap as soon as you grab a leg lock. And now you see a bit more. What you're seeing more now, though, is more of defense to the entry to the legs hmm. and less defense once you get there. So prevention. So I, yeah, you're seeing a lot more prevention. And it's really only preventing those main dominant angles, like the Donner angles, like inside control and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But once you start seeing people go on the outside of those inside angles and like inverting through it, you don't see those defenses working quite the same. So there's always going to be a, like a catch-up game. It's like the steroids in baseball where you're like, they're always like just ahead and then <laughs> testing gets just ahead. And that's kind of how it's going to be for like lots. I don't think there will ever be a definite where like one's ahead of the other, like defense to offense, mm-hmm. but there'll definitely be jumps up. But the defense lately has been quite good. You've been seeing far less like lots, I feel, than you were seeing in the previous years because of the defenses. But I think that's only going to drive the offense forward that much more. I know there were predictions before that the leg lock defense game, especially in terms of like instructionals and things like that was going to explode. Do you think that's come to fruition at all? I mean, well, not really so much with instructionals, but leg lock defense stuff has kind of exploded a little bit. But you still go to like almost anywhere in the country and the vast majority of people have a very low understanding of leg locks. 
like even the people that I think they have an understanding of Lightbox are very low. There's like a few camps of people that really know what they're talking about and have a full understanding of how to how to properly entangle legs, how to properly control legs and keep bends in it to apply proper braking leverage. A lot of people will just do like fancy like spins between legs and stuff like that. But you'll see it more to where it starts spreading. I'm really interested to see... I feel like eventually you're going to see a hotbed of leg locks come up in a place where we didn't expect because people to start playing with ideas. Hmm. A lot of times once you're in these camps where you're like, oh, we're leg locking camps, you get a lot of definites where people are like, oh, you can't do this. You can do this. And I feel like anytime you speak in definites in jujitsu, you're really just damning yourself to be made a fool because <laughs> that just means you didn't understand the mechanics to make something work. And then someone hmm. else is going through it and you'd be like, I said that would never work. How do you avoid not falling into that pitfall? I just try to stay curious. I like, I believe anything will work if you have proper mechanics. It's like uh, my students will sometimes play with stuff and they'll ask me questions. They're like, will this work? I'm like, show me, let mm. me feel it. And every once in a while, they come across some gems like that. Like That's I watch cool. a lot of like, uh, Kyle Terra posts a lot of stuff with some cool, like arm and shoulder locks. I saw him post one the other day and I'm like, man, it's cool to see a guy like that still exploring still these creative it. angles. Yeah. So I'm like, if he can do that, like, I know I can with, with like the leg lock and stuff. And I also like, I just get curious. So even like when like my toe is broken, like anytime I'm hurt, I try to do like mental reps where like I'll roll in my head. Like I'm mm -hmm. playing chess against myself. Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, I go here, I go there. And you start connecting these dots and you're like, all right, so what would happen if I do this? And like, every time I like, I do it for long enough, I'll like figure out a little detail in a technique or maybe a new technique or something like that. And I, I use that a lot to where I create scenarios in my head. I'm like, all right. How would this person react? Well, naturally, they're going to slide their back to the ground or they're going to try to push away. All right, if they push away, what would I do next? All right, hand goes here, here to stop the grips. How did your leg game then, how did you develop it in terms of even learning it and, and thinking about it and experimenting with it? What, what did that process look like? <laughs> it looked like getting leg locked a lot at first. If you ever have Paul or Sergio Ardia on, they could tell you all about it. They were there for a lot of it. But it was just picking up stuff along the way. Like you would like learn a leg lock here or there. Like YouTube wasn't as big of a thing. So you didn't have like all the techniques that you have now. Like occasionally you'd run across somebody. Like I would like run into like Ruben Alvarez. And we'd like exchange some techniques. Or like I, I talked with Sean Applegate and I bounce some stuff off him. And I'm like, oh, okay. Or like text. And I'd be like, text, what do you think about this? But a lot of it, yeah, it's just evolving to fit my body type and the, the game and style that I like to play as jujitsu. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that, that's pretty much what I've done. It's a lot of like that staying compact, locking in, making sure you secure your position, then set the legs hard with proper breaking mechanics. Why haven't we heard more about you? I know that you're well known in the South and you've crushed a lot of people down there for quite some time, a number of years, but you came onto my radar a few years ago, kind of just exploded on the national or international level, whatever you want to say. And here we are. And so I'm curious your, your thoughts on that. I mean, I think part of it was like in the South, we really just never really got the same coverage that other people did. Like there's, there's no real big like guy out of the South that everybody was like, oh yeah. There's a lot of players LA. there now. Like, I think yeah, South, I mean, the South is a hotbed now. Time. You know, you got what Decatur there. You got everyone like yeah. Chewy down there and his stuff and, and you guys. and. But that's only within like recent years where people even talked about it. Right. Like up until a few years ago, nobody mentioned anything mm -hmm. about the South. Like Alliance HQ was in Atlanta forever. And mm -hmm. No one really mentioned too much of anything. And there was like no me media outlets like in the Atlanta area for jujitsu. So like you would have like New York talking about their New York guys, California talking about California guys, and occasionally Texas and Florida because mm -hmm. of big teams out there. And I was on a small team for a long time, basically running a program. So my name never really got out there. And then like every once in a while, I get to like a big show, but I wouldn't have a lot of experience like traveling and compete. So like maybe I didn't do as well as I did like in Atlanta or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I did the Onnit Invitational. I think it was like one of the first big things. Or no, it was 
was a Sapatero I probably did. It was like the first big thing Sapatero, I, yeah. I did. Mm-hmm. And I did like the heavyweight division and I submitted all my guys in like under a minute, like all together. And then I did the on it invitational where I was like one of the smallest guys, I think, in it. And I submitted Roberto and Kyle both in around a minute. And then mm-hmm. I, I had some injuries here and there and stuff like that. And I was never a big social media person before like Josh LaDuke yelled at me one day when he... <laughs> He's like, man, you should have a bigger name. Like, let me mm-hmm. manage you. So he managed me for a while. So I learned a lot about social media from him. So that kind of helped a bit. But yeah. So you bring up California, Florida, et cetera. I'm, I'm curious why you just didn't. And I don't mean to say that you should have, but I'm curious why you didn't just go. Uh, it's funny. You it's know? like I thought about it and stuff, but I, I love Georgia. <laughs> so like Savannah was always a place where I wanted to open my own school. Like, I had thought about other places. I had thought about Austin before it blew up and everything like that. I was talking with Curtis about maybe moving out there. Yeah. I looked at Hawaii, but it was too far from family. Florida and Charleston were like the other two places I looked at, but it just didn't have the same feel as Savannah. I just like, I like Georgia. Not to mention, I like, I had a good squad around me in Atlanta too. Like I had the Idea Brothers and we would just meet up every night and beat the crap out of each other and got really good. You brought up belts. So let's talk about that a bit. Your thoughts, you've kind of alluded to it, but let's say Quentin's hypothetical king of the world of the belt system. How would you modify it without just removing it altogether? Honestly, like, yeah, honestly, I I probably would just remove it altogether in a perfect world. Cause like, if you go (laughs) into a wrestling room, you don't need to like to see a belt on a guy. Like you walk in, you see who's doing wrestling. You're like, all right, that guy's really good. Or somebody will tell you who that guy is. And you're like, Oh, that guy's really good. I feel like a lot of times with belts, you see these black belts who probably shouldn't be black belts, have no business teaching jujitsu, but maybe like got a belt from a guy who felt bad or got like paid to get like a belt online from somebody. Or like you have students in class where the only thing they focus on is the next belt and it totally ruins their day because they're like, I thought I was getting my purple belt today. It's like, why would you think that? And I'm like, oh, because of this in my head. And it's like, why aren't you just thinking about getting better at jujitsu? Like, this is what we're here for. So I think a lot of times the belts almost take away from the art of jujitsu. I think a lot of people put too much focus on it, put too much emphasis on it. And I think too many people hide behind belts. Like I see, like I go into gyms and I see that thing like, oh, bow to instructor, come on the mats. You can't ask black belts to roll. And mm-hmm. that's, that's not what I want. I, I um, hiding behind a belt. Like they do the where like, have you ever gone to a gym where they're like, oh, it's impolite to ask the black belts or ask the higher belts to roll? Yeah. Like, I hate that. I want everyone to ask me to roll. I tell my guys that all the time. We have guys that come in from other gyms and they're like, oh, I want to get a roll with you, but like, I'm afraid to ask. I'm like, never be afraid to ask me to roll. If you ask me to roll, I'm always going to say yes. And I want my guys to get better. So I want them to ask the good guys to roll. That's mm-hmm. how you make better people. And I think that mindset kind of hurts the sport of jujitsu for a long time. And I think belts have kind of held a lot of people back. I know even personally, like when I was coming up in jujitsu, there were points in times where I focused too much on the belt and didn't focus on the jujitsu. And you see those pitfalls happen to people over and over and over again. Yeah, giving somebody a belt is nice and it's cool to see them smile, pat on the back, but does it really change anything? Like their jujitsu is either good or it's not. And their knowledge of jujitsu is either good or it's not. And you can figure that out in 10 seconds from talking to somebody instead of looking at a piece of fabric around their waist. It does seem like a hell of an incentive, though, is a thing. You see a lot more jujitsu academies out there than wrestling academies now, nationally, right? From uh, just a yeah, business that's perspective. Yeah, because right? a, a sport for them to follow. For the longest time, there was nothing for wrestling outside of high school. Like, we yeah. had adult jujitsu and stuff like that. And most of the time, if you look at a lot of these divisions, especially no-gi, like in the gi, maybe I get a little more, more traditional and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. no-gi, if you look at divisions, 
divisions. There's no breakdown of belt by divisions for most tournaments. No, it's no, time no. you've yeah. been training. So mm-hmm. why do we do it? I don't know. So, I do a back and forth on how I feel about it because it is a good motivator for certain people, but for other people, it's a detriment. Yeah, it's tricky then because I mean, you have to promote people, right? So how yeah. are you dealing with that process and your thoughts on belt testing? I hate belt testing because belt testing basically tells you that there's one draw in line for everyone on how they're going to get their belt. And everyone's process of jujitsu is different. My path through jujitsu is much different than your path would be much different than someone else's path through jujitsu. People look for different things. So like if I'm promoting somebody, I don't look for the same things from two different people, depending on what kind of goals you tell me, depending on age, depending on what your overall takeaway from jujitsu is. Uh, Like if someone comes in and they tell me they want to be a competitor, they want to be like a world champion. Like I'm going to be a lot harder on you. You're going to have to compete to get your belts and stuff like that. But if you just come in as a hobbyist, I'm going to look on how you roll. Yeah. But more, I'm going to look on how you think about jujitsu, how you put it together, whether you're able to teach it, whether you're able to understand it, what your breakdown of technique is. And if you understand like all the concepts that make things work, which I don't think you really get from a test. Cause like when you see traditional testing, like even in like martial arts gyms, it's remember these things for this amount of time and then it leaves you forever. So for me, belts are earned every day because you, you are that which you do every day. So mm-hmm. if I come in, I see somebody looking good every day consistently, I see technique improving. I see their sequences going past like one or two moves to where they start connecting things in an even flow. Like that means you're moving up in belt. <laughs> To advise some of those academy owners out there who have identified, you brought up competitors, young competitors, or have something potentially, right? And they're just beginning this competing process. How do you groom that that process? How would you recommend it being when that you've went through all of this and you've made mistakes and through that whole process to become a professional? I think it's entirely dependent on the person because everyone's different, right? So like how I went through stuff or how I would have gone through stuff for me is entirely different than how I would go through stuff for somebody else. But really what you want to do is you want to set realistic goals and expectations, but you don't want pressure levels to be high. Like for kids, what you really just want them to do is to gain experience. Experience is everything for kids. doesn't matter if they win or lose. Just let them go out and compete as much as possible. Keep them on the mat as much as possible. But as far as for anybody that wants to be like a professional in the only thing that'll make you get to that level is time on the mat. I don't care how much you read, how much you think about it, how much you wish for it. (laughs) Time on the mat is the only thing that changes anything. (laughs) Be a mat rat. You want to be a pro, be a mat rat. And as far as kids, just don't push them too hard. I've seen tons of kids come in, win like a a no D world championship and then quit because their parents make it a job for them. Like it should never be a job for a kid. That's interesting. I would have thought that you would have potentially said, you know, break them. You know, just break them and break them in the gym because I've heard this before so that they don't break in competition. I used to think that, right? Mm It's like I used to think you break them. The problem is, is when you break somebody, not everyone comes back from that. Some people can only be broken so many times. Agreed. So eventually you end up with like a a fractured person or with like a fractured ego. Mm -hmm. I I think the real key is just the ego elimination entirely. Like you make their ego not a part of it because as soon as ego becomes a part, then you start seeing mistakes. Mm-hmm. Ego leads to anger. Anger leads to mistakes. Mm-hmm. Sort of leave it out completely. Studying the game, the importance of that. It doesn't sound like, or am I interpreting this incorrectly, that, that studying the game isn't the most important thing or a very important factor, like uh, instructionals, et cetera, things outside of the mat. I mean, it is important. It's not the most important. So like you can add to your game for that. It's like throwing spice on a dish, right? So if I have a steak, like my jujitsu is a steak and instructional might be a little bit of salt on that steak, but it's not the steak. Like it'll sustain you, 
with the steak. You can't get sustained just off the salt. Like every once mm. in a while, you'll pick up little details and stuff like that. But I feel like a lot of times with instructionals, people leave out details purposely. And I think they do that. So people bring them in for seminars and they're like, oh, this is the detail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there are good instructionals where you can take stuff away from. Eddie Cummings instructional, the Jiu-Jitsu one, was one of the cleanest, best instructionals I have ever bought. And I have not bought many of them. And it's also depends on your personality set, right, too? Because certain people's instructionals, I don't really care for as much. Like, I don't like when people like like to hear themselves talk. I'm like, just get to the point. Tell me what we're doing and let's get it done. But yeah, no, no, no. Nothing beats being on the mat and just working through problems and fixing it there. It's been what helped me get good. It, very few things have I actually really taken away from instructionals. Seminars are great, though. Go to seminars. Hmm. I've had huge breakthroughs on my jiu-jitsu game from little details I picked up at the seminars. Oh, and most of the biggest details I got like that changed my game were from seminars of people. I had no idea who they were before I went to the seminar. So you've kind of touched on this, but what makes a great jiu-jitsu student? <sighs> they have to have great long-term memory, but no short-term memory. Bad jiu-jitsu students dwell on every mistake they make as they go along. Good students don't dwell on any of those mistakes. They just correct from them, but they don't get mad at them. They understand mistakes are part of the growth process. So really it's it's the people that are willing to come in and make mistakes without being embarrassed by them or having it fall prey to their ego. Those are the best students. <laughs> it seems like that would be a common thing because you're worried about the coach seeing you fail, fail, yeah. fail, fail. No, no, it literally goes against what most people do because they're like, oh no, I don't want them to see me mess up again. And it's like, no, no, no. But you want me to see you mess up because that's how I'm going to fix it. And we're going to get better together. There's no anger or like anxiety about it. Like you're literally here to learn from me. So mm -hmm. show me your mistakes. When did you come into this awareness along the process? Or did, did you always have that? Or was no, it I, like, I got to win. I got to win. I got to uh, win. I mean, I, I just don't think of it as a, in terms of winning. Right. All right. Like I never really have. I think of it as like completing a goal. I like solving puzzles. So for me, rolling is like a, a constant puzzle solving. Mm. So I'm like, all right, this goes here, this goes here, this is here. Now I have this. Oh, puzzle solved. And that's how I treat each role. So as far as like winning and stuff like that, like it's not even in my thought process. And I, honestly, I, I think that becomes almost detrimental to a point too. So let's, let's talk conversely then. What makes a great jujitsu teacher slash coach? <sighs> I think it's the ability to understand that even as a coach, your student might be able to show you something you've never seen before. I think a lot of times people get stuck in their ways on how they do things. And that's when you see people fail to evolve with the game. And that's, you'll see a lot of these coaches that have come and go over the years because of their failures to evolve. So I think it's always being open-minded to new ideas, holding your students accountable, but not making them resent jujitsu in doing so. You got to keep it fun. The best coaches are those that keep it fun and light and keep their students happy as they train. A happy training environment is the best training environment. Like you can go to those rooms where their coaches are yelling and all that stuff. Tell me how many champions they'll produce. Probably maybe one, maybe one will grow out of that. You go to a room where everyone's having fun and training doesn't seem hard because like you're all laughing and having fun when you're doing that. Those people will train all day. So I, I think that's the biggest thing is, is creating a positive environment as a coach. One of the things I seen you in that I saw recently that was fascinating was your back attack system in uh, on Brendan McCaffrey's instructional site because it was really interesting and very unconventional where you do this sort of thing where you're punching through the side. Can you describe it? And you're actually using your leg when you're attacking the back. 
Yeah. So I use different leg angles to create angles on the back. I think a lot of times people think about the back is very like, I'm bat pat seated over you. And this is the only position I'm going to finish from. Right. So I right. like to create different angles there. And then a lot of like my offense, especially now is about eliminating defense to offense. So like the whole burrito gripping system and stuff like that is all about eliminating the, that defensive arm to help make some of my other attacks easier. I do the same thing with legs where like you eliminate the defensive leg because most of the defense you're going to see is coming from the opposite side. So we can control that side or threaten something on that side so they don't think about it. It makes our attack on our initial way easier. Let's talk about uh, your BJJ Fanatics instructional leg lock obsession. Yeah. How did that go, that process go? And how'd you come up with that? And what can people get from that? So leg lock obsession was a lot of the, like my high percentage stuff that I had been using in composition forever. It was my first instructional. So it was like me just spitting out everything I could on leg locks that people <laughs> always ask me to put in instructional. And like you get your Z locks, you get a lot of the cool setups that I like to use. A lot of unconventional leg locks they use in different positions. Like that goon lock from half guard um, is a cool one. People don't typically see too much, but it's just leg locks till the wheels fall off, basically. Galore, galore. Is this like a like a beginner's or who's this for? I mean, honestly, like it's a good place to start with a leg locking system. I have tons of people that message me all the time, but like I never really understood leg locks. And then I bought like the leg lock obsession. I love it. I use this and this all the time. And then they'll ask me questions on some other stuff to add to it. But yeah, no, it's good for all levels. It's like a, honestly, if you asked me like three years ago, I'd say it's kind of an advanced one. But nowadays it's probably like a, a middle of the road to like beginner level leg lock entry. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but um, do you still have comedic aspirations? <laughs> I would love to. Yes. Uh, part of it's just finding the time to, to get in and do it. I'm a big person that is like, if I do something, I, I go kind of crazy doing it. Yeah. And I just don't have the time yet. Like with all the schools going, once these schools go to where I can actually like go out and do some open mics, I definitely want to. Wow. Uh, I love comedy. I like, I, it's like the only other thing I obsess over. I, I make my friends listen to my jokes all the time. So you're not worried about bombing or anything like that? Failure is a part of life. It's the only yep. way we know we're living. Can you tell us something else that the people just don't know about you? Oh, I'm a huge comic book nerd, if you didn't oh, really? know. really? Oh, wow. yeah. I have quite a comic book collection. I like. There's a comic book store, like the building over from my gym, and I'm there at least twice a week. <laughs> Is there an, any particular, you know, uh, group of comics or that you're focused uh, on? I, I do Deadpool. Big Deadpool fan. Obviously, the red and black. It's my Hitman colors too. I like all the like all the Spider-Man stuff. Is always cool. Doctor Strange. I've been getting into some of the Suicide Squad stuff lately, like the King Shark. How'd you learn to tie your belt? <laughs> How did I learn how to tie my belt? Oh my God. So one of my first instructors, Steve Mitchell, used to teach it this way, where you would do the uh, the wrap over, go over, under, and tie. And uh, there should be, how do you see in Portuguese? Oh, I don't know, man. Basically, they would say there should be a on the bottom. And that's how they taught you how to tie your belt when I started when I was like 15. <laughs> yeah. Cringy this was a different time. Belt. This was a different time. <laughs> oh, seven, something like that. Oh, man. Oh, six. You know, I've heard whispers of heel hooks in the gi. What are your thoughts on that? So, honestly, I think heel hooks are easier to defend in the gi because of the lapels. If to you start defend, about, did you say? Yeah, because if you can grab the lapel, the person can't lean back into it. Agreed. So, I think, honestly, all you're doing is you're holding back the gi game from evolving. 
by not adding heel hooks. I never really understood it long term anyway. They're like, oh, it's more dangerous. Mm. But that's not the case. They're like, oh, because you can't slide out. I'm like, well, you're not going to slide out of my Nogi one. Like, mm. It doesn't make a difference. Do you think it would slow the game down even more, though? No, I think it would open it up more. Because a lot really? of times you see those 50-50 sweeping scenarios happen, and you wouldn't see yeah. that happen as much with heel hooks. Yeah. Because it would be, be too dangerous. Casting. The only time you see slowing in the game is when areas of the game are shut off, because then people can't export those, uh, those offenses. So you see it as a benefit to the gi game, then? Yeah. Honestly, I never see any sort of benefit from holding back knowledge in jujitsu. And I think it's holding back a lot of growth that could happen with passing and the stopping of passing for the gi. Because if you can grab like a leg and then slide it into a heel hook, maybe you're not going to pass all the time. Maybe you're going to drop back for a leg. Maybe that changes the game up and down a lot more. Or maybe you're going to threaten it and that guy's going to pull it away and it's going to open up the passing more, which opens up more stuff. Yeah, no, I've always been a big, big fan of heel hooks in the gi. Like, just let them do it. Grab a little pellet if you want to defend. If you don't, get tapped. And then the evolution of no gi. Your thoughts on that? I mean, it's kind of went where I thought it was going to go. I did an interview, like probably one of the first podcasts I did a long time ago where I was like, you're going to see a lot more wrestling and a lot more leg locks. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of what you've seen. As far as where it goes from here, I'm really curious. I think we're going to see some uh, some interesting guard stuff coming soon. Like I see a lot of these guys like the Derek Rayfield and stuff like that throwing these crazy high guards and angles. And I mm-hmm. think that's really going to change stuff up here. Like Ben Eddy has all the crazy stuff he does. Mm-hmm. But I think it's going to get even, even a little bit weirder on the angles of what kind of guards people play. And as far as like top positioning, I think we're going to see, probably going to see a lot more flying attacks, honestly. I feel like you don't see quite as much for a while. And you always see these ebbs and flows of jujitsu on like what's real big for a while and what falls off as defenses mm-hmm. come. And I haven't seen quite as many flying attacks to seated guard, which I think mm-hmm. you'll start seeing more of again. You're not much of a flying guy. Nah. Uh, I like to wrestle, take the back or attack your legs. That's, uh-huh. that's my game all day. I mean, I will fly, but when I started out doing grappling, I used to like throwing flying triangles, mm. but I also like did MMA and like one time falling on your head. Good. You get a little uh-huh. and you're like, I am not doing flying stuff anymore. <laughs> anymore <yeah. laughs> so why haven't we seen more of your wrestling? I think honestly, I just never get a chance to do it. Usually I just like lock people real quickly, but you'll definitely see more of it in the, in the coming years. I got plans. I honestly, uh, I spent a long time working on it too. Like I had uh, Jason Kelly. He was like one of the founding members of American Top Team. He was the wrestling coach for the Nerdarius. He was in here yesterday and we were getting wow. around going. And then when I was in Atlanta, I was at Morris Fitness. So I'd have like Olympians coming through there and I get to wrestle with them. So plus again, Paul and Sergio Ardia are amazing wrestlers and they were my main training partners for but I think you just kind of get in the thing where you're like, ah, I'm going to do what I do. And then I'm going to leg lock somebody. So Quentin, where can we get more information about you and what's happening with you, bro? All right. Uh, mainly Instagram is the biggest thing I'm on. So it's at Quentin Rosenzweig or at 10 Sav. If you want to come train with me, it's 10 Planet Savannah, 1319 Bull Street. We're right in downtown at Sportside Park. Outside of that, check out my sponsors, Good Rolling, Grappito, Charleston Hemp Collective, Red Bowie. They take care of me, so please take care of them. Outside of that, look for me at some comps coming up. I'll be on the 205 show for Sapatero in August as well, so watch out for that. Twisted Church and maybe Subversive. Working on that. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for listening again another week. I'm Adolfo Ferrandi, your host. Give us a thumbs up on all the socials, and we appreciate it. And Quentin, thanks so much for your time. And uh, see you guys all next time.